Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, open with me to Isaiah chapter 46, and we're going to be in Isaiah 46 and 47 today as we continue our series in the book of Isaiah. And this is a bit of a part two from last week. So if you're here with us last week, if not, you can go back and listen online or we'll catch you up a little bit here at the beginning. But I just want you to kind of recognize there's a tie-in. Um, it's been an uh, interesting couple weeks at the Thompson House. There's been a bit of chaos yesterday. My son, who's in love with the color blue, decided to drink a bunch of blue food coloring. Uh, and that came out the other side, in case you were wondering. So that was interesting. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we, years ago actually, we started this tradition called monkey hugs. Anybody do monkey hugs at your house? They're weird. Okay, I fully admit it. So monkey hugs started with my daughters just thinking it was a lot of fun to grab on and then wrap their legs as well as their arms around. So I'm the tree, they're the, the monkey, right? So it's called a monkey hug. Well, monkey hug started as just that. It was sweet. It was cute. And then they started to back up and run at the tree. And that was less fun for the tree, uh, but still a good time. So they would run across the room, boom, I mean, just fly, uh, flying squirrel style, right? And just wrap themselves around. And that was, so monkey hugs have progressed. Well, for um, my middle daughter, monkey hugs have progressed to, they're no longer fun to run across the room. Now they need to be given from the stairs. So yeah, you know where this is going. So, you know, we start on stair two and then we go to stair three and we go to stair four. And I'm dad that just is so proud of my daughter who's really courageous because she keeps going up more and more stairs. Now, if you've been with us a few years, you may remember that this is the same daughter that we came to the sledding hill when she was two. And she said, I want to go by myself. And I said, awesome. <laughs> years of therapy, just years of therapy. She's still not a fan of sledding for that reason. So this is my Emerson, my middle, and she, um, she, you know, again, steer two, steer three, steer four. We got to steer seven. And I thought, we got this. We are good. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, you're already cringing. So I, I dropped her. <laughs> she jumped, and I thought I had her, but she kind of twisted midair because she thought like a little bit of a herky in the middle of it would be really fun too. And, and it just didn't play out. She hit me, boom, down. And so we, we're relearning some basic truths around our house, like dad can be trusted to catch me, right? So we're, we're recentering around that truth. That's the effort that we're working through, uh, is that sometimes we forget basic truths, right? Yes? Forget basic truths. And sometimes we forget them because our dads drop us, right? But here's the thing is last week, as we were looking at the, you know, the text in Isaiah, what we were seeing is that God was trying to recenter his people around some very basic truths. Uh, he was recentering them, and unlike me, God never drops us. And so what he was saying to his people, to the people of Judah, to the people of Israel, he was saying, look, let me recenter you around some things that it's very important for you to understand. So if you remember last week what he said, and the tone was firm, right? It was, if you remember reading it, it was, a, it was not a, the most gentle of tones that the text took. There was some firmness to it. So he was declaring to his people who were confused and frustrated that everything I do is for your good. Do you remember that he was saying that to us? Everything I do is for your good. And then he said something which can be really hard to comprehend. He said, everything that happens to you is caused by me. 
I'm, I'm, I'm the, the root of it, right? And then he said, it isn't wise to question my ways because you don't know what I know. And so he, he used that metaphor of the potter and he says, does the, does the pot say to the potter, like, why didn't you make me with a handle or why didn't you make me this way? And he says, no, it doesn't question. And that was his response to our, sometimes to our why question, right? And then the fourth thing that he said to us is your life is part of something bigger. It's part of a bigger plan that I have to redeem people from every nation. And I'm bringing them into my kingdom and I'm working that out. And so the things that I do in your life are towards that end. Everything is towards that end. And so we, we saw those four things. Now, here's why I say he was trying to recenter his people in that time is because in confusion and frustration, often we can stray away from those basic truths. We can forget them, right? And so God is recentering with some amount of firmness his people. Now, this week, what we're going to find is that having done that, what God is now going to do is he's going to pick up uh, for us a little bit of a gentler tone. And he's going to say to us, I want you to know that I am able to save you. Whatever's going on in your life, I am able to save you. And that's what he's going to say to the people this week. So having recentered them now with some firmness, he's going to follow up on the heels of that. And he's going to say, let me give you some assurances that I am able to save. So that's, that's really our theme today. As we look at Isaiah 46 and 47, we're going to see God giving assurances to us that he can save us. Now let me just say as a little bit of an aside here that this is a great time for me to point out why it's so important that we are regularly in the habit of drawing together to worship God and to look at his word. Because if last week was the only week that you ever showed up here, you're going to get a picture of God that's not totally true, Right? You're going to hear something that's true, but any church that cares at all, I mean, if this is not your home church, right? Any church that cares at all about you actually knowing God as he is, is going to walk you systematically through his word. They're going to walk you systematically through an understanding of who God has revealed himself to be in his word. And that means that some weeks the tone is a bit tough, right? And we're going to hear about judgment and we're going to hear about some things that God is declaring to us about our sin and how he wants to do away with it and what he's up to. And it can, it can be tough to swallow. And then other weeks, he's going to come as he's going to come today on the heels of that. And he's going to say, now let me remind you and assure you that I can save you. Right? But if we only show up every once in a while, uh, we don't get a clear picture. It's one of the reasons why the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake coming together as the body of Christ, as the followers of Jesus, to both love one another, care for one another, but also to hear his truth proclaimed, to hear his word, because it takes to be transformed and changed the way God wants to transform us and change us. It takes the regular repetition of sitting underneath the authority of the word of God. Every morning as we go to it, every week when we come together to hear it preached and declared, uh, it takes regular, because none of us are changed that quickly. Would you agree with that? Right? None of us are just snap your fingers and all of a sudden that struggle you had, that thing that you can't seem to let go of or whatever it is, it just goes away. You know, more often than not, God works that out over time. He works that out over time as we sit under his authority. And every time we come here together, by the way, as long as the truth of God's word is proclaimed, then we're sitting underneath that authority, the authority of that word, not under the authority of a preacher or of, a, of church eldership, we're, we're sitting underneath the authority of God's word. And as we do that, as we do that, it changes us, right? You may not feel how it changes you, but it changes you. It shapes you. 
Right? So that's just a little aside. But let's, let's return then to our theme now in Isaiah 46 and 47. That God is going to give us some assurances that he is able to save us. Now, in the historical context, as you remember, God is speaking through Isaiah to the nation of Judah, and they've been sent into exile. Now, this is Isaiah speaking into the future now, 150 years past his lifetime, about what is going to take place, that the nation of Judah is going to be sent into exile because they failed to be faithful to God. And so now living in exile, he's recentered them in the, in the previous chapters around some true things. Uh, they are wondering if God has forgotten them or forsaken them, if they can still in any way say we are God's people, uh, his chosen ones. And they're questioning that. And now he's going to come and he's going to say, let me give you some assurances that I'm going to be able to save you. So this salvation that he's talking about in Isaiah 46 and 47 is, is, is to be saved from exile, to be brought home out of Babylon to their true home. That's the saving that he's talking about doing. But the thing we can recognize as those who are now living at this point in history and on this side of the work of Jesus on the cross, that while he's declaring to Israel, to Judah, that I can save you from exile in Babylon, some of the same things that make him able to save them at that moment in history for his purposes, which was ultimately to send his son Jesus through them to save the world, some of the same things he says about who he is and what he does and how he operates apply to us in our assurance that God can save us. Right? Life is filled with difficulty. And so there's two ways in which this idea that God can save us operates. One, he is able to save us from the difficulties and the oppression that we face whether that be difficulties that we face in the physical world uh, because of illness or sickness, or whether it be difficulties that we face because there are people who actually oppose God in the world and those who want to walk with God will face that opposition, right? Whatever those difficulties are, he's able to save us from them. But ultimately what he's pointing to is whether he delivers us from those things in our immediate short term, he will save us in the long term. He will save us when he brings us home to be with him out of our exile. And so we can relate, right, that Judah is living in exile. Are we living in exile, church? We are. I wonder if we act like it sometimes or if we feel like this place is home. But our true home, the place that we are longing to be brought out of exile, to live in, is yet to come. And God is declaring to us, I'm able to save you and bring you there. I'm able to sustain you in the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ and to bring you to your true home. That's what God is wanting to assure you of today, that he is strong enough to get you home. So let's look at the, some of the things that he says then. The first thing that we find in the assurances that God gives us that he will save us is this. He's gonna assure us by saying the things that your enemies worship, the things that, that people who oppose me, God, worship, are a burden to them. Now, I'll explain how that's meant to be an assurance to you. But look with me at Isaiah 46, verses 1 through 3. He says, Bel bows down and Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. Now those gods that he just mentioned in verse 1 are the gods of Babylon. Those are the two chief gods of Babylon. And he's saying that they are bowing down and stooping and they are being carried by cattle, essentially, on a cart. And then he says, These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, 
They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Okay, so let's pause there. And in, uh, actually, yeah, we'll look at those, uh, some other verses here in just a moment. But the first thing God does here, oddly enough, is to tell us that when we end up with hardships because there are people who oppose him in the world and we are trying to walk faithfully when we're walking in the path of obedience to him, that those enemies, those who oppose us, won't have staying power in that opposition because they worship things that place a weight on them rather than taking weight off of them. Okay, and let me explain that if I can. All right, which here's what that means. It means that they cannot sustain their position of strength over us for very long. So he wants us to see that the things that often scare us and make us think that we're not going to be okay that those things don't have as much strength as we think they do. Even if we think they have significant power, even if they do have significant power right now, they don't have long-lasting power. They don't have power to continue to oppose us and oppress us forever or for, well, yeah, forever. Now, look at what he's saying about the gods of Babylon. What he's essentially saying is, that these gods are no gods, and the reason you can know that they're no gods is why? Because they have to be carried on the back of an ox, right? They have to be carried by cattle. So in other words, and what he's going to say in the next verses is, by the way, I am able to carry you, my people, but these gods are not able to carry anyone. They must be carried themselves. It's a great image. Do you see that he's kind of being sarcastic here? He's poking fun. If you ever think God's not sarcastic, he is, right? He, he is poking fun of the gods of Babylon and saying to them, oh, those are great gods. They have to be carried. They can't even sprout legs and walk anywhere, right? And so his point is that the gods that people worship that are not him, anything that, that is worshiped that is not God, ultimately has to be carried by the one who worships it. And if it has to be carried by the one who worships it, it becomes a burden that must be borne by the worshiper. Now, we're going to see how that plays itself out in a minute because he's going to describe some of the things that get worshipped, not just Bel and Nebo, but the specific sort of philosophies that, that, that worshipping those gods leads to in chapter 47. And we're going to see how those things actually become a burden to those who worship them. But church, here's what he's trying to communicate to us about his ability to save us, right? When you face opposition in the world, whether it's, whether it's just illness, sickness, whether it's from the devil, whether it is from those who, are, who oppose God and, and propose a secular humanistic view of the world, whatever it may be, when you face that, the thing you need to recognize is ultimately one of the reasons God can save you from whatever that opposition is, is because that opposition is worshiping something which will become a burden to them, which will become heavier and heavier over time and will not be able to sustain them. It can't give strength, it takes strength. Now, some of us have experienced this, right? Because when we find that we are worshiping things that are not God, do you find that it takes strength from you rather than giving you strength? It absolutely does. Let's look at a few examples because we'll find that we're not that much different in our culture, in our day and age, than the things that the people of Babylon were worshiping. By the way, as God is pointing this out to his people, as we go through these, the thing I want you to recognize is he's not just pointing it out so that they would know, I can save you because those things, not only are they not as strong as I am, but the people who worship them ultimately have to carry them. Therefore, they will run out of strength. They will run out of power. So that's one reason you can know 
that you will, God is able to save you. But the second thing and the second reason he's telling us about these things is he's, he's saying to his people, don't fall into the trap of worshiping those things like the people around you. Because here's the temptation, right? You see people whose lives look really good when they worship these things. You see them and you're tempted to say, I'm in exile. I feel forgotten by God. And when that's the case, maybe, remember the, the, the sort of mindset of the ancient Near East that, that these people would have been living in was whoever's army conquers the other army, that's whose God is strongest. And remember last week that we saw that God is saying, no, no, I'm actually in control of all the armies and all the people and all the kings. So it's not a contest when war happens between me and some other God. But that would have been the mindset. So the temptation is to look around and say, who is fat and happy, basically, right? Who, who seems to just have everything that they want? And what are they worshiping? And let's worship that. That's the temptation that he's wanting to help them avoid by pointing out how these false gods, false philosophies, become a burden to those who worship them. So let's just look at a few. If you look into chapter 47, in verse 1, it says this says, well, let me, let me say this. In chapter 46, what he's going to say is, here's all the reasons I can save you. And then in chapter 47, what he's going to do is he's going to point out that he's going to judge the Babylonians, right? He's going to judge those who oppose him. He's going to bring an end to their power. And so this is his word to them, okay? Chapter 47, verse 1. He says, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. So he's He's not talking about a specific young woman there. He's actually just comparing Babylon as a country to a young woman, right? He's saying, you, you think of yourself as this youthful, beautiful, vibrant young woman, right? So come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour, put off your veil, strip off your robe, Uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. So the first thing that we see is that he's declaring to the Babylonians, you love the idea of youthfulness. You think that you are young and beautiful and you worship that idea. The gods you worship cause you to value youthfulness over age and wisdom, right? That's what he's essentially pointing out there. And he's saying that youth is, you think youthfulness is what ultimately can save you. So you might find it in a statement like this, right? I am young, I am beautiful, I am healthy, and people will be drawn to me and they will love me. Does that sound like anything we might worship in our day and age? Right? Unless it's a commercial for AARP, you don't find many commercials that are aimed at your 55 and up crowd, right? I'm inching closer to that. I'm like, there are less things aimed at me on this TV than there used to be, right? Which is probably good. And he's saying, look, you, you think, Babylonians, that this youthfulness is, is really gonna save you. But he says, oh no, it won't. Because think about the burden that youthfulness creates when we worship it, Right? Youth is not bad. Youthfulness is not bad, right? But when we worship it, when we must have it, think about the burden it places on us. 
you are chasing and trying to keep something that absolutely cannot be kept. Can anyone in here stop time? Right? You can't. Neither can I. Right? The gray hair is coming. The wrinkles are coming. The aches and pains are coming. Where are my octogenarians? Somebody say amen. Yeah, my dad's going to listen to this. He may hate that I say this, but my dad just crossed the 70 uh, barrier and I was talking to him the other day and he said, he said, something happened when I crossed 70. He's like, I just, I've, I have pain every day now as opposed to just when I push it too hard, right? And I said, dad, I'm sorry that, you know, that stinks. And he's like, it just is, it just is. And my dad has a godly perspective about it, right? And he just says, it, it is, right? But when you worship youthfulness, do you see how that's a burden to you? What you worship, if it's not God, creates a burden on you. Now look at the second thing that they worship, because it's pleasure is the next thing. Look at verse 8 in chapter 47. If you go down a little further, he says, Now therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. And they're talking there just metaphorically, right? Like these tragedies that might come upon them, becoming a widow, losing children. They say, we're secure. We're secure and it will not come upon us. We're not, that's not gonna happen to us, right? But at the beginning of the verse, what you found there is he calls them lovers of what? Lovers of pleasure. We can't relate to this one at all, can we? He says, so this might, worshiping pleasure might look like sort of saying, I have resources and access to satisfy all of my appetites, all of my desires. Whatever I desire, I can satisfy that desire. Whatever my appetite is for food, I can get it. Whatever my appetite is for entertainment, I can get it. Whatever my appetite is for, you fill in the blank, I can get it. And he says, when you worship pleasure, you think I'm gonna be so comfortable I will not have to face pain in life because I have access and ability and authority to access all the things that give me pleasure. And if I'm accessing pleasure, am I ever uncomfortable? That's kind of the point of pursuing pleasure, right? And so that seems like a great thing to worship. If I worship pleasure, right, then I'll be good. But he says, oh no, you're missing it. Don't you see that when you worship pleasure, it, it's a burden that you must carry, Right? It's a burden that you must carry that, that does not carry you. It weakens you because when you worship pleasure, the things you consume end up consuming you. When you worship pleasure, the things you consume end up consuming you. They become addictions. And rather than carry you and give you comfort and give you pleasure, there will come a day when that addiction consumes you rather than being consumed by you. Look, just think for a moment. Let's just, let's just use a, a straightforward one, right? Think about your phone, right? If you can't put that phone down and you have to have it 24 seven and you're staring at it and it's your source of, of entertainment and staying connected to, you know, a phone's a great thing. It enables you to connect with people, right? But, uh, but when you worship pleasure, what does your phone become? It becomes a burden to you, something you can't live without, something that, is, that becomes an addiction, right? That's just a simple example in our day and age, right? The third one that he points out 
and there's four of them here, but the, the third one that he points out is also in verse eight, and we read it, it's power. When they say, we'll never, I'll never be a widow, I'll never suffer the loss of children, what they're essentially writing about there, uh, what God is writing to the Babylonians is to say, you think that you have power to control your circumstances. And therefore, because you're in a position of authority, you can control those circumstances and therefore be okay, be safe. You'll never suffer or struggle under the loss of anything because you think you're powerful enough to prevent it. But think about what kind of weakness. Now, this is ironic, right? Because power brings about weakness, right? When you worship power, what burden does it place upon you? Well, the burden that worshiping power places upon you is that you become convinced that you must keep power for yourself rather than give it away for the sake of others. When you worship power, you can't give power away. You can't give authority away. You have to have it. You have to keep it. And you have to keep it under your control. And so you no longer use power to serve others or to give it away and empower others. You use it for yourself. You become convinced that power is a zero-sum game, that it's, there's, there's a limited quantity. That's, this is what zero-sum means, that there's a limited quantity, and I need to have it. If I have it, then no one else can have it. But if they have it, then I can't have any of it. So it's not something that can be shared is the lie that you begin to believe about power when you worship power. This is an everyday occurrence. Just think about people whose authority you're underneath and think about whether they lead well and share power and authority or whether they, in some form or fashion, worship power and keep it for themselves. Think about whether you do that. Something I have to think about whether I do, right? But that's the burden that power places upon us. It begins to twist us by convincing us that it cannot be shared. I'll give you an example of this, right? So I said it weakens us by convincing us it's a zero-sum game. The tension in our country around race relations and our current day right now is due to many factors, but at least one of those factors is that there is a growing minority population in our country. If I've seen the statistics correctly, by 2040, the minorities in our country will be the majority. Right? What does that mean? It means those of us who are white and who have been in the position of power throughout the history of our country are losing power. We are losing positions and seats of authority. And when we worship power, that's not okay. We can't handle that. We can't stomach it. When my group, when my people, whatever that may be, loses the position of authority, if I worship power, it's not okay. So again and again, that's really, I think, what we're seeing played out when we see the tension that we find around race in our country. Again, among many other things, at least one of those things is an inability of white people to let go of power. Now, I don't know how you feel about that statement. I find it, let me say this, I find it to be true in myself. I find as a white man that when I think about losing a position of privilege and power and authority in our country, which my person group has predominantly held, I find it difficult. I find it hard to think about laying down that privilege. I find it hard to think about laying down that position, about laying down that power. So I'll put it on me. You can ponder whether that's true for you. The last thing he says is worshiped is knowledge. Look at verse 10. It says, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. Now that statement, I am, should be familiar to some of you who have studied your Bibles and have read in the Old Testament that God, when asked for his name by Moses, declares his name to be what? 
I am, right? And so they've acquired knowledge, the Babylonians, and they were some of the smartest people on the planet. They were well-known for their gardens and their astrological practices. They were well-known as a people who had a lot of knowledge, right? They had studies and university, and they were well-known as a very smart, intellectual people. And that knowledge led them, because they worshipped it, to say, I am, and there is no one besides me. Do you see that that's a rejection of the idea that anyone would be in authority, any God would be in authority over them? That's what they're declaring there. Now think about how knowledge becomes a burden to us if we worship it. If we worship it, right? Because here's the key. Think about everything we've said pleasure, power, knowledge, youthfulness, are any of those things bad things? No, they're not. They're all good things intended by God. But when they're worshiped, when they're worshiped, they become bad things, right? And so he's saying, well, how does knowledge and the acquisition of knowledge, how does that become a burden? Well, we live in a 24-7 news cycle. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the amount of knowledge it feels like you have to just have to function in the world? just feels like it's moving too fast. It's like, I, I can't keep up with everything that's occurring. I can't keep current. Maybe at your job, you realize there's a constant churn of new information and new learning. And you're thinking like, how, if I don't have that, how can I even go to work today and do the thing that I'm supposed to do? Right? I feel this as a pastor with world events. And I just think like, how do I lead my people in the midst of such confusing circumstances where there's something happening, it feels like every other day that is just shatteringly important, it feels. Uh, and sometimes that's a wrong perception on my part, right? How do I lead them through that? Like, I have to have more and more knowledge. Chasing knowledge, you can already feel it. It's a burden, isn't it? It wearies you and it convinces you that you can't do what you must do unless you have acquired it and held it and continued to pursue it. Knowledge is just a harsh taskmaster, if you worship it and think you must have it to be okay, it will be a harsh taskmaster to you. Now, all of those things, as I said, they're good things. They're just not meant to be worshiped. And what God is pointing out to the Babylonians is the gods you worshiped have caused you to philosophically worship these things and to delight in these things. Now, go back to our original point. In a world where, would you say that it's fair that the four things that I just named are probably still worshipped in the way the Babylonians worship them? If that's true, and those who oppose God's purposes in the world worship those things, and prayerfully we as God's people will not worship those things, yes? But if the people who oppose God in the world and his purposes in the world worship those things, what can we know? They are worshipping things that will become a burden to them that will drain their power. Therefore, we can take assurance that God is stronger than they are and will save us. God will, the short way to say it is God will win. God will win. We're meant to take comfort from that. We're meant to think, yes, God, you're able to save me. The second thing God says to his people now, that was the longer point, the next two are gonna be shorter. The, th the second thing God says to give assurance to his people that I'm able to save you is he says, I want you to remember my history of faithfulness. I want you to remember my history of faithfulness. Look back at chapter 46 again in verses three and four. And he says this. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried 
from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. Now, why is it important to catch the language there? Because what has he just said about the gods of Babylon? They must be carried. And what does he say he will do for his people? I will carry you. And I love it because he says, from the womb, from the womb I've carried you. And then he says, even to gray hairs. So in other words, all your days, from the beginning to the end, I will carry you. I am carrying you. Are you having trouble seeing how God is carrying you? Maybe, maybe, and sometimes we do, but he is carrying you because he's promised. Did you see verse four? I will carry and I will save. And I will save. My friends, wherever you find yourself, the assurance of God's word to you today is he has carried you and he is carrying you and he will carry you. Has, is, and will. Now, one way, one way to soak up the assurance that God is going to save us is to remember all his acts of faithfulness throughout our lives, is to go back and think about the ways he has carried us in the past. Do you find that when you think, oh, I remember when he did, and you fill in the blank, that you are much more prone to trust him to do it again. So that's what he's calling us to. And he's always called his people to this. If you remember all through the Old Testament, when he says to the nation of Israel and Jews, he says, I want you to remember. I want you to remember that I'm the God of your forefathers. I want you to remember that I'm the God who delivered you from slavery in Egypt. I want you to remember. And by the way, this exile that they're in right now, later on in the Old Testament, he's gonna start to point out, I want you to remember that I'm the God who delivered you from that exile that you were in, in Babylon. I'm the one who did it. So isn't it interesting that we have the full scope to be able to look and go, he's telling them now, remember the things that came before the exile, and then he's gonna tell them later, remember that exile that I brought you out of. He's just gonna continue to use everything he's done in his faithfulness to remind us. In verse eight of chapter 46, he says that. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. In other words, he's just calling his people to be a people who remember. We must be a people who remember what God has done. I'd encourage you to just make a regular habit. If you don't have a journal, if you don't have anything, you ever write anything in, it's helpful to make a, a record of God's faithfulness. I hope something's coming to mind. Even as I say it now, is something coming to mind? They go, oh, I remember when you did this, God. I remember now, here's the other beautiful thing that I love about this is it's not just that we're called to remember what he's done in our individual lives and then therefore trust that he's gonna save us. It's that we are to remember what he's done for us uh, corporately. That throughout, so it's not just, because one weapon is to say, oh God, I remember the time when I was going to seminary and I had no money uh, and then every time a, a bill was due, there was money in the bank. Like, I remember, that's intensely personal, okay? Like, right, like, I remember the time when. So we remember our own moments, but here's what's even better. In addition to that, remembering all that God has done for all of his people throughout all of history. So, because we're a part of a people group, right? 
so that we remember, I remember what you did for Israel and for Judah. And you did that so that you would preserve a people, establish and preserve a people through whom you would send your son who would die on the cross and then redeem me with his blood. So all his faithfulness to Israel and to Judah is faithfulness to who? As well, to us. And then God, I remember when you brought them out of exile. And then God, by the way, I remember in the stories of the saints of old, how you established your church in the early days through Paul and through Peter as they went and proclaimed the gospel. And everywhere they went, you sustained them and you strengthened them and you used them and you, you did mighty works through them. When you read the book of Acts, that's a demonstration of God's faithfulness, not just to Paul and to Peter and to Luke and to all those who were living in that day and age. It's a demonstration of his faithfulness to who? To us. And by the way, one more, even better part, right? Whatever God is doing in the life of person A on this side of the sanctuary to display his faithfulness is a demonstration of that faithfulness to person B on this side of the sanctuary. So that far from just having to say to myself, here's what God has done in my past, I can celebrate and should celebrate what God has done in the past of every single person that I come in contact with who is his, who is his person, who is one of his people. It's a great tool for remembering and trusting that God is going to save us when we live connected to one another and we hear the stories. And that, by the way, when we remember that, prevents us from becoming jealous that God did something for someone else and not for us. When we're like wanting him to do something and then he does it for someone else, that's kind of hard, right? Like, why did you, why did you do that for them? Why not me? And, but if we take the attitude that every demonstration of his faithfulness to someone else is a demonstration that he is going to save me as well, is a reminder that that salvation is his to give and he's gonna give it, he's gonna do it. Last assurance that God gives us, right? So the first one we saw, the first uh, assurance that we saw was that God says uh, our enemies or those who oppose God uh, worship things that are burdened to them so he knows that he can deliver us from them. The second thing is that we rehearse his faithfulness and then the last thing is he says he will give justice, in chapter 47. Now that may seem odd. As you read through chapter 47, and we already read some of it, so I won't repeat it, but as you read through chapter 47 and you see that essentially what God is saying is um, those who have practiced wickedness, those who have opposed me, the Babylonians in this case, are going to face a day of judgment. That they're gonna face that. That's gonna come about. You might think, well, how is that supposed to be a comfort to me that he's gonna save me? Well, in their case, you can see that, that these are the people who are opposing them, Right? And he's saying all the things that they are doing to oppose you. He actually says to the Babylonians, he says, I gave my people into your hand and you showed no mercy. And because you showed no mercy, I will bring down vengeance upon you. Now, why is that supposed to be a comfort to us? And it's not because we delight in anyone being condemned by God or God's vengeance being poured out upon anyone. That, that's not why it's a comfort to us. Remember the major theme of the book that we touched on just last week is God is saying, I want to bring people from every nation into my family, right? It's the overarching theme of the book. And so we, we want that to occur. But we know intuitively, I would argue instinctually, just by nature of being human, that we need a God who is not just loving, but also wants to do away with evil. Because a God who just overlooks evil and brushes it aside and acts like there's nothing to it is a God who is doing nothing for those who have been oppressed and harmed and systematically put away, those who have been uh, persecuted 
for God to overlook those things is not a just God. And we know intuitively that we need a God who is both loving and just. And so it's meant to be an assurance to us when God says, I will bring evil to an end. And I will bring vengeance on those who practice evil. That is meant to be an assurance to us that he's able to save, to do away with evil. Romans 12 is really helpful towards this end. Listen to what Romans 12, verse 19 and 20 says. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What's Paul saying there? He's saying the way to get out from underneath, uh, feeling the need to take vengeance or revenge yourself is to not just trust that God's got you and he's gonna protect you in the long term. It's to actually believe that he will one day make everything that's wrong right and he will bring about vengeance on those who have practiced and perpetrated evil and who have opposed his purposes in the world. That's meant to be an assurance to us. Now here's the great news, is that that vengeance of God, that wrath of God has fallen on Jesus for everyone who will come under the shelter of the cross. Every one of us has been a perpetrator of evil, yes. Perpetrator of wickedness, yes. One who opposes the ways of God in the world, yes. Raise my hand and say yes to all three of those things. And if we come underneath the shelter of the cross, the wrath of God is poured out upon his son so that it does not have to be poured poured out upon us, which is why Romans 12 can say, don't take revenge. God will execute it. But even in knowing that, seek to bring about the salvation of your enemy by heaping burning coals on their head. The idea there is bringing them to sorrow and repentance for their opposition to God. And the way you do that is by returning good for the evil that is paid to you. That's the heart that loves God and wants to see people redeemed and understands that the only reason that you are not subject to the wrath of God is because you have come underneath the shelter of the cross. Now in Jesus, what we find is these these promises that are meant to assure us are incredibly powerful, right? Because he says, I'm a God who carries, not one who has to be carried. And when Jesus carried the burden of the cross, he carried the burden of our salvation. And so he carries us. He says that he is a God who is faithful. And Jesus' cross and resurrection is the ultimate demonstration of faithfulness on the part of God to everyone who would come to him. And then lastly, we see that he won't leave injustices unpunished. And the reason we can know that is because he's poured out his wrath upon his son so that every injustice, every evil would be paid for whether by those who won't come under the shelter of the cross or by the Son for those who do. So my friends, all this is meant to give you great joy. All this is meant to assure you that the God who has saved you with the blood of Jesus will continue to usher you into that salvation so that he is with you and can bring it about. He is strong and wants to assure you that those who worship false gods and those who oppose his purposes will not linger for long They have their day in the sun, maybe now, but God's salvation will triumph. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your strength. We thank you that on the cross you have purchased for us 
life eternal. And just say now, Father, that there would be great joy in your people, that you would cause to well up within us to see what you have said about how you're able to save, your strength, your goodness. Let it be an assurance to us. Let it fill us with faith, Lord Jesus. Let it fill us with faith. Even as we stand and sing in response now, may our hearts be filled with joy and the assurance of faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's sing.